Hello! We're glad that you've joined us. We're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today I'd like to consider a topic that has become quite neglected and considered irrelevant in, in our world, because it, it, it is true that Jesus came to save sinners. In Matthew twenty twenty five to 28 that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Luke nineteen nine that he came to seek to save, seek and save the loss of Israel. And also in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, that Jesus came to save sinners. Now, for a good 200 years or so in a lot of evangelism, the main emphasis on salvation has been personal salvation. And this has come from a few emphases. One emphasis is on one emphasis, excuse me, is on God is personal. The second emphasis, therefore, is that God wants a personal relationship with you as an individual. And therefore we get the third emphasis. If God is personal and he wants a personal relationship with you, therefore your individual personal relationship with God is seen as preeminent. This is almost taken for granted in our culture today. But it may surprise you to find out that according to the page of the Bible, it's pretty bad theology. Very heavy on enlightenment and American philosophy and influence. And it misses how God has worked with humans as revealed in Scripture. Now, now it is true that God has personhood and because of personality. But even then, in John 17, 20-23, Jesus prays so fervently that, that the people he, he's praying for may be one as he is one with the Father. That the unity is in relational unity. That God is relationship within himself. That sure, God wants a personal relationship, but the personal relationship with God can't be between two atomized individuals. It's independent and separate from everybody else. It's impossible because God is relationship within himself. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So united that even though there are three persons, we speak of him in the singular. And if God is so intimately tied within himself we cannot imagine that he's only going to want to connect with individuals as individuals God calls mankind and invites mankind to participate with him and in him and in the work he's doing as we saw there in John 17 and also in 1 John 1 1 through 2 6 so a personal relationship with God cannot be its own end as God is one in relational unity God's mandate for those who would be his people is for them to be one in relational unity, both with God and with each other. And that's the whole point in John chapter 17, that prayer Jesus has. That as God is one, as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that they are one, he wants us as those who hear the word of the apostles to be one with one another and with him like that. In Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that they are one is Paul's preeminent goal in that passage. In 1 John 1, 1 through 7, that we may have fellowship with the apostles, or the apostles have fellowship with God, that we can all share in that together. Now it is true that in three points of Scripture, God works with one person, Adam, Noah, and then in succession, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis. And at each point, though, God is working through these one individuals to build a collective of people. Because working through one person was never an end to itself. Sure, God made Adam, but then he made Eve for Adam because it was not good for Adam to be alone in Genesis 2.17. Noah also had his wife, his sons, and their wives. Abraham had Sarah and Lot. 
And the whole point of all this is that God was working through them to get to a nation and a group and a community. And the reason that we talk about this is because throughout Scripture, God works through His people. And that people is envisioned as a collective serving Him. Israel, the church, His kingdom. So to truly serve our God, who is one in relational unity, we must seek after relational unity among ourselves to be the people worthy of the idea of the people of God. And so in Christ, the people of God is the spiritual Israel, the church, the manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth, which he said he would build in Matthew 16, 18. Peace be upon the Israel of God in Galatians 6, 16. The body in Ephesians 5, 23 and Colossians 1, 13, the idea that we've been transferred into his kingdom, that the body is the kingdom manifest on earth. Now, when we talk about this church, the Ecclesia, Christ's assembly, we recognize that it has universal and local senses. Because there's only one body in Ephesians 4.4, 4, but churches, Ecclesia, of Christ in Romans 16.16. 16. Uh, but even though there are universal and local senses of the church, the New Testament doesn't make that distinction explicit. And we need to keep that in mind as we continue in our investigation. Because it is within the local church that God's people in Christ are to function most prominently as his community, his body, his people. We can see this functioning, for instance, in Romans 12, 3 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 17. Christ has but one body. And so all the people in Christ are the various parts working together. But it's a necessity in life. You have this in your life, everybody has it in their lives. You work closest with the people that you're closest to. And so, functionally, the more proximate you are to somebody, because of physical geographic closeness, because of relational closeness, because of being good friends or family, or have, having created deep connections, uh, the, the closer you are to somebody, the more joint participation that can take place. And that is why the individual Christians' responsibilities to the church take place most prominently and frequently in the context of the local congregation. Because, if nothing else, that is the proximate geographical group, the people that we're closest to physically, geographically, with whom we can work together to glorify God in Christ. So since we are to share in community and reflect the unity of our God who is one in relationship, we do well to consider how we can do that in the local congregation. And to consider why association and participation in the local congregation is so important, something that is lost so frequently today. And what responsibilities are there for each member toward their fellow members of a local congregation? So again, just to make it very clear what we're talking about, we can see in the scriptures the idea of the association of a local congregation. In Acts 2, we have an example of, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized. And it said in the end of that passage in Acts 2, 4, 7, the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And so, once somebody is baptized, they're automatically added to the Church of Christ, the universal church, the collective of all people who are part of God at all time. Who we can see with an important example in Acts chapter 9, that just because you're part of that, low, uh, that universal uh, assembly doesn't necessarily mean that you are fully recognized as a member of a local group. In Acts chapter 9, we're told about Saul. Saul had been persecuting the church in Jerusalem, but he was converted in Damascus. And so when he got back in Jerusalem, we're told in verse 26 of Acts 9 that 
he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So we can see there that Saul wanted to be part of that local church in Jerusalem, but they had concerns because he was persecuting them. But yet Barnabas, somebody they trusted, vouched for him. They attested to his character, and then he was welcomed into that local body. And so he was identified for that time with that local body there in Jerusalem. And it's not just here with Saul. In Romans 16 and in verse 1, a verse that tends to be controversial for other reasons, and we're not going to necessarily get into that right now, but we're told about Phoebe. And Paul ta- says that he commends to, to you, to the Romans, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. And so from this, we can create, in the, in the, in the Roman world, if you were traveling, uh, you, could, you would need somebody to vouch for you, because who knows who you are? And, 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 of course, there's no motels, there's no um, things of that nature, and so you were very much dependent on people's hospitality. And so the reason he says this is that if Phoebe comes to town, or perhaps Phoebe's even carrying this letter to Rome, uh, that the, the brothers and sisters of Christians in Rome will know that she has this attestation. But notice here that she's still considered a servant of the church in Cancreae. She'll be visiting in Rome. But when she's in Rome and and some of the church there, she's still a member of the church in Cancreae. She's still considered part of that group. Because that's her local congregation that she assembles with, and she happens to be traveling for some reason uh, to Rome. Uh, we also see uh, frequently that Paul would sh- want to greet or share the greetings of churches meeting in houses or in general geographic areas. Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. Uh, that's kind of a, a whole group there uh, that's being uh, discussed, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and other areas, the churches of Asia greet you, the churches of this greet you, and so on and so forth. And so we can see that Christians associate in local churches, and we see also that there's a level of organization in the local church that doesn't exist beyond it, that uh, Paul worked diligently to appoint elders in every church in Acts 14:23. Such elders existed in Ephesus in Acts 20.28, 20, in Philippi in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, Paul instructs them about how the, the qualifications of the men who should be appointed. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter talks about that office. And so they had their organization at that time. So that's what we can see in the, in the New Testament about certain functions of the local church. And we do well to consider some differences that exist in time and place. Because for the most part, even the first century, when travel was at its easiest that it would be for another 1,800 years, uh, for the most part, people were far more stationary than they are now. Then most people would have lived and died within a few miles of the same location. And so they would probably be born and were raised in one city, would become part of a church in that one city, and, and, and live and die in that one city. Uh, those who did move around, like we see, like Phoebe, would be identified as part of their home church. There were itinerant preachers, like the apostles, Timothy and Titus, who would jointly participate with whatever congregation with when they ministered at the time, whether in starting one or um, with Timothy uh, in Ephesus, Titus in Crete, uh, working with whatever congregation they happened to be in at the time. 
Now, today, we have people who are much more mobile and who may move frequently in their lives. Uh, many communities have more than one church, one congregation in their area. Uh, Nevertheless, the New Testament is clear that God expects participation by individual Christians in local assemblies, that they are identified with local assemblies, and that they are therefore accountable to local assemblies. And when we think about the New Testament, think how much of it is written to Christians in local congregations. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Peter, maybe even 2nd John, depending on how you understand the, the nature of the lady. Uh, Revelation is written to the seven churches. That the local congregations as ecclesia, this assemblies, would meet and do so frequently is taken for granted. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 18, Paul says, when you come together as a church, talking about some problems they have, but it's just taken for granted. This is what you do. That's what an ecclesia does, an assembly assembles. And that Christians in Hebrews 10, 24, 25 are encouraged to participate and join in those assemblies. And elders are to shepherd the flock, and they bear responsibility and accountability in Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And that is why there's a level of expectation and ac- accountability to the members as elders. Uh, to the members, excuse me, as four members to elders. Now, in a congregation where there may not be elders, there's still these uh, ideas in Galatians 6, 1 and 2 that those who are spiritual should restore someone who has strayed and that we must bear one another's burdens. Uh, James 5, 16, that we confess our sins to one another. In, in 19 through 20, uh, the blessings that come to those who bring somebody back from destruction. Those demand at some level some kind of accountability of members to one another, even, as we said, when there is no eldership. Now, it's been very... This is very important and sad, that there have been abuses about how people demand identification from people as part of a church, how people demand certain kinds of participation, and accountability, very much accountability. Uh, Some groups have taken some of these things too far and gone well beyond anything expected of the New Testament. And yet, as we recognize those abuses, we mourn those abuses, and we condemn those abuses, just because there's an abuse of a thing does not make the thing itself wrong. Um, that God still expects them, and there's good reason for them, uh, when they are not abused. And the reason why is because the local congregation is very important for God's purposes for each individual Christian. Because we can see throughout the New Testament... But especially in many of these passages we've mentioned, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, also Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, uh, Revelation 21 through 22, that God in his wisdom established the church, that his people would not be isolated, alone, scared, easily ensnared by the evil one. We've got to keep in mind that our society and culture lies to us when they say that we can be self-sufficient and independent. Because it's not true. All of us need others. We need other people for strength and joint participation to accomplish more and better than what we can do on our own. We need to be part of something greater than ourselves. Our, our, we, we have things deep inside of us calling out for that. And that's why we have all these illustrations of Scripture about the church. Body, temple, family. They denote health and joint participation and weakness and alienation and despair and even death when separated. Now, all of these illustrations are true in the universal sense of being part of the body of Christ universally. But they place, take place most functionally in the nearest proximity, which is, of course, the local congregation. And by the way, social media is great at connecting people, but it never can replace physical proximity. And that is why, even though we have so much wonderful technology, the local congregation and its actual physical assembly maintains its purpose and meaning in the, even into the 21st century. 
And so therefore we either join and participate with the local congregation and be subject uh, to the accountability demanded in that enterprise to reflect God's people, or His purpose for His people, and to live. Or we can try to do it all on our own, struggle, we'll remain weak, and most likely spiritually die. That's... That's kind of the choice put before us. There's that personal relationship with Jesus everybody wants to talk about. It's never been and never will be sufficient in and of itself. Jesus himself drew strength from his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And he died and was raised again to establish not a personal relationship, but a kingdom. In which all could find strength and edification together. We can't do it alone. We need to do it together. Alright, so what do we need to do together? Well, as we said, we need to identify as part of one another. And the local congregation will only be as strong as the willingness of its members to, to stand up and say that they are a part of one another. And that they are going to be accountable to one another. And it also means that you own up to the congregation as your own. That it's not they, it's not it, but you are a part of it, and it is a part of you. And we need to figure out how we fit and how we identify with the local congregation. We need to be accountable to one another. Just as each part of our human bodies need connection to other parts to function, not die, that's why parts of the body of Christ need to have connections with other parts. And that's accountability, that in, in a large degree, that you uh, are a part of the local church, you're going to strive to strengthen it as you are strengthened within it, to help the body build itself up in love, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. As each part of the body... In, in your physical body needs to do its own thing so that the whole can function. So each member of the local congregation needs to do the thing that they do uh, and to be exhorted and prompted to do so when necessary. Now, I know, especially if you're listening in America, that, that, that the idea of accountability is something you're very skeptical about because Americans don't like accountability. Uh, but it's a cultural defect because in Romans 14, 10 through 12, we are all standing for the judgment seat of God. We are all accountable whether we want to admit it or not. And, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-13, that we are accountable to one another as people in the body of Christ. And that we, we have to get over that. And to understand the benefits that come with accountability. We also must work together, and everything that entails. Uh, that's why Paul has this wonderful passage we keep referring to, and it's high time to actually go ahead and read it. In Philippians chapter 2, we'll read the first four verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right there, Paul is making this commandment for shared life. To have the same mind to be in full accord, have the same love, counting others as more significant than yourself, being humble, seeking each other's good. We also need to assemble together. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, that we uh, come together and encourage each other all the, and all the more as the day draws near. After all, what's an ecclesia, an assembly that doesn't come together? How can you have joint participation in an assembly if you're not there and in it? How are you sharing in the body and blood of the Lord in His Supper if you're not there sharing it with the people with whom you're supposed to be sharing it? In 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17. How can unity prevail in a local body in song and in prayer and in exhortation and instruction in the Word when its members are not there to share in it? So we can see in Acts 2, 42, 1 Corinthians 14, 14-17, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 2, 16, and 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. 
How is a collection really a joint participative contribution if many of those who are supposed to share in that work are not there and or not giving, as we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Now, make it very clear, the assembly is not the end of believers' joint participation, but it must be the foundation of that joint participation. It is the least of what we should be doing together, but yet it still must be there. Finding a good, healthy balance about the assembly is very hard, because there are a lot of people who uh, have emphasized this only to the point where it, it seems to be the expression of Christianity. And on the other hand, the reaction to that means a lot of people are discounting it to the point of it being considered almost useless or optional or, or somehow irrelevant. And it's neither of those things. It's, 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 it's foundational, but we must go well beyond it. We must care for one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25-26, that we, that we have care for one another. And to care for one another demands knowledge of one another. You can't build and bear anybody's burdens if you don't know anything about them. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are in, in honor prefer one another. Uh, we demonstrate that when we get to know each other and we take care of each other. That we love one another. And notice when Paul, John, me, talks about love for one another in 1 John 3, 16 and 17, 4, 7 through 21, he cuts through and devastates some of our excuses. That if you have the world's good and see your brother in need but don't give that to them, you don't really love him. That your love is only in word, it's not in truth, it's not in deed. And in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, that you, you can't say you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen. And that whole beautiful discourse on love begins in the middle and ends with this exhortation to love one another. John's whole point in writing it is not just to get us to rhapsodize about God's love and learn how God is love, although that's certainly true. And that's certainly a part of it. The whole point is a drill into our heads. You need to actually show love to one another. You've got all these other people out there telling all kinds of false stories about Jesus, and it's clear they're false and you're true because you actually love one another and doing the things you said to do, and they are not. That's not true if we're not showing that love to one another. In 1 Peter 4, and verse 9, Paul says, Peter says we need to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, you can't care for people, like we said, that you don't know. You can't get to know one another just by showing up in the assembly and participating with people in an assembly. Uh, the work of relationship building takes place in joint participation in life through conversations and considerations that you have when you show hospitality. And that's, it's not optional. People have, have made hospitality optional. It's not. Because it's imperative to strengthen the connections among the various members. And so much of how this functioning is supposed to take place are seen in the one another exhortations in Scripture. Uh, now, sure, there are, you can see a lot of these responsibilities to one another beyond the local assembly, but it's never exclusive of it. It's never to people outside the local assembly and not inside the local assembly. Uh, the greater the proximity, the greater the priority and emphasis. So we're to love one another. In John thirteen thirty four fifteen twelve, many of the passages to serve one another. John thirteen fourteen, First Peter five five, as we said in Romans twelve ten, in honor prefer one another, to edify or build up one another. Romans fourteen nineteen, to receive one another. Romans fifteen seven, teach and admonish one another. In Romans fifteen fourteen, Colossians three sixteen, salute one another. Romans sixteen sixteen, First Peter five fourteen, other passages. Bear one another's burdens in Galatians six two, to forbear that is to forgive one another in Ephesians four two, to comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, to exhort one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 and Hebrews 10.25, to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deed works in Romans, Hebrews 10.24. We can also say to pray for one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and 18, to do good to one another to provide assistance in times of need in Galatians 6.10. Uh, 
all of these things are wonderful things, uh, or sometimes a challenge, uh, especially to those closest to us. Uh, but with whom are we the closest and can do these things? Sure, we can talk about people in our family. We can talk about people at work. But we're clo- we should be closest to the people in the local church. And hopefully a local church includes some of those people in our lives. Now, our ability to accomplish these individual responsibilities that we have toward one another in the local church is proportional to the strength of the relationships we have with one another. What we mean by that is the stronger our internal relationships among one another as members of the body of Christ, the more likely we will be to know each other's needs, to maintain each other's trust, to be more effective in our exhortations, instructions, and efforts. But the weaker our internal relationships, the less likely we will be to know each other's needs to maintain trust, and therefore will prove less effective in our exhortations, in our instructions, and efforts. And unfortunately, there's plenty of examples of that in too many places. Uh, quickly, uh, the New Testament also talks about specific roles that exist in the church. It, there's different parts of the body, in your human body, accomplishing different functions. Thus it is in Christ's church. Uh, and a lot of those roles aren't, aren't explicitly listed. And, then, and they'll involve different situations, different places, different times. Uh, but there are certain specific roles for individuals. We've talked about elders. They're to shepherd and oversee local congregations, and they're to equip the saints for ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, 1 Timothy 3, and in 1 Peter 5. The deacons are to serve the congregation at the direction of the elders in Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 3. Evangelists are to strengthen all people in the gospel of Christ to help equip the saints for ministry in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 and 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now these roles are necessary to exhort the local congregation to the way God wants it to work, but the work of the local congregation is not theirs alone. Uh, notice that emphasis there. They are to equip the saints for ministry. That the saints are the ones doing the serving. Evangelists serve in their way, elders serve in their way, deacons serve in their way, but everybody's supposed to be serving. And so it's not just the work of a privileged few, it's the work of all members of the body of Christ. So as God is one in relational unity, so a relationship with God cannot exist independently of his people. And therefore, if God's people were to be autonomous individual units, he'd be denying himself, because he is not that. He is no such thing. Thus, we must take the importance of joint participation with the fellow people of God and the body of Christ very seriously. The closest people of God that we have is a local congregation, and God expects us to identify with, participate in, and be accountable to be a local congregation's people if we are going to truly be Christians. How that local congregation functions is dependent on the strength of the relationships of its constituent members, their commitment to follow through with God's commandments that are given to us as one another. Therefore, let us jointly participate with the fellow people of God and local congregations to encourage and to edify one another until the day of the resurrection of life so that we can share in the presence of God for all eternity. We're again really thankful that you spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged and strengthened uh, by what you've heard today. Maybe you've got some questions about it. Maybe you'd like to become a part of the body of Christ. Maybe you'd like to talk more about the, the function of the local church. Uh, maybe you have other questions you'd like to talk about. Or maybe you're going through some difficulties. Maybe you need some prayers. Maybe you just need to talk. Any way we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about the Venture to Christ, maybe you're in L.A., maybe you're interested in about who we are, uh, check us out. We're online at VentureToChrist.org. We're also on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Google+, 
uh, Twitter, YouTube, things like that. And you can find out more about who we are, what we're doing, and I'd uh, love to get to meet some time and join in some of the things that we're doing. Uh, we again, thank you. Have a great day.